0: Good evening, everyone. It is Wednesday, July the 8th, 2020. It is currently (laughs) 6.55. Let me try that again. Wow. I'm off to a great start tonight. I'm off to an absolutely fabulous start. This is where I should say, take two, but I'm live on the air. So good evening, everyone. Welcome. It is Wednesday, July the 8th, 2020. It is now 6.56 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from Victory Baptist Church, located here in Ovalo, Texas. And well, this is our Wednesday evening service. Yeah, due to COVID-19, I'm not I'm not standing in front of anyone. I'm not even actually standing behind my pulpit. I'm sitting at a table at the back of the sanctuary. And even though we cannot have church right now in a traditional, normal way, that doesn't mean we should stop, uh, you know, coming together at least, you know, virtually virtually on the internet, we can still come together. We can still open our Bibles. We can still dig in and ask some tough questions and try to grow in our understanding of the Word of God and try to grow in our understanding of doctrine, theology, the history of the church, grow in our understanding of God. And we can we can try to accomplish that even though we may have to do it in a little bit of a different way. And that is where we are tonight. Now, We've got a lot to talk about, all right? Um, when I originally came up with this idea, this idea all came from an email that I received. Uh, someone asked me to do this. And at first I'm like, okay, that'll be relatively easy. I I think I can pull that off. I don't really need to do a lot. But then the more I kept going back over it and kept going back over it, my notes started getting longer and my notes started getting longer. So I hope I can accomplish everything I want to accomplish tonight. I I don't know if I'm going to be able to pull it off, but I'm going to do my very best. All right. So we're going to start by considering a, a very important hermeneutical principle all right. Something I really 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 want you to think about because I think um this principle explains I think this principle explains why so much of Christianity approaches scripture in a certain way. It's because of it's because of their hermeneutical approach to the text and and we're going to kind of offer a different perspective. I think there's two different ways to approach uh, some scriptures. And I think that the way the majority of Christianity, the way they, it's kind of the default position and no one ever in the church raises their hand and go, wait a minute, if that's the default position and that's the way we should look at this, I've got like 50 questions because that doesn't seem to match reality in certain ways. And, but it's almost like you're trained to never raise your hand and ask that question because this is almost like if you're within Christianity, this is just the way you look at the text, and we're gonna we're gonna kind of offer uh, a challenge to that, and and the challenge should not be considered radical, um, but it's going to be considered radical because of the way Christianity handles this, and you'll you'll see what I mean by that. All right, are you ready? Here we go. Here are some uh, phrases I want you to write down. Number one: physical versus spiritual. Physical. Versus spiritual. When we read scripture, sometimes those scriptures seem to be indicating some kind of promise. Some kind of uh giving us some kind of hope. Some kind of promise. And there is a tendency that we will see some of these promises. See some of these things. And we will interpret them that this is promising something for my Physical existence, something that will benefit me physically, something I will experience physically versus looking at some of those promises, looking at some of those texts and go, wait a minute, I think this is not referring to something physical. This is referring to a spiritual promise. This uh, this is ap- applies to my spiritual well-being. This applies to my spiritual health. This applies to my spiritual life right now. This apl- uh, applies to my spiritual life in eternity. But there are tendencies. We come to these passages of Scripture and we just immediately say, oh, no, that applies to right here, right now. This is what you get. This is the promises you get. Name it claim it, and you get it. Now, when I say that, some of you, oh, you're talking about that crazy charismatic stuff. Oh no, this kind of way of, this this way of thinking shows up in all kinds of churches that don't even call themselves charismatic. There's just this real tendency to sell Christianity. Hey, if you become a Christian, these are all the things you get. And look at all these promises. God's going to do this for you. And we almost make the promises as it applies to our physical life our physical existence, what we will physically experience, and we do not apply it to the spiritual existence alone. Right? It may not make any sense yet, just stay with me, all right? So physical versus spiritual. Second, position versus practice. Position versus practice. Sometimes we'll come to Scripture, And we have to ask ourselves, is that referring to me and my position before God, or is this referring to my practice, how I live my life? Is this speaking of how my position before God, how God sees me, my standing before God, and that's all that relates to, or is this talking about something dealing with how I live my life Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, right here on earth? Is this referring to my position or is it referring to my practice? Is it referring to the physical or is it referring to the spiritual? I think you're starting to see kind of a theme emerge here. When we open the Bible and we see what appears to be a promise, is that referring to my physical life or my spiritual life? When I see certain scriptures, is that referring to my position before God? Or is it referring to my practice that what this is saying, this should show up in my practice? And if it doesn't, well, then here are the consequences. Is it is it my position or my practice? And there's a third. Eternal versus temporal. When I open the scriptures and I see a scripture, is this referring to something that applies to eternity future, right? When I'm in eternity with God, or is it referring to something that I can count on and should expect right now in the temporal world in which I live? Now, you may say those are three ways of saying the same thing, but there's, there's, I'm I'm stating them three different ways because there's a little nuance there because I want to make sure that a lot of scriptures can fit into one of those categories. All right, so let's go through them again. Physical versus spiritual. Physical versus spiritual. Position versus practice. Eternal versus temporal. So physical versus spiritual. Position versus practice. Eternal versus temporal. When you open the Bible and you see a scripture, you're like, wait a minute, is that referring to my physical existence, what, right here, right now, my life, or is this referring to my spiritual my spiritual life? When I open the scriptures and I see a scripture, is this referring to my position before God, or is it referring to my practice that I live out Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday? When I open the scriptures, is that referring to something in eternity, something dealing with my eternal existence or is it dealing with my temporal existence? Now what happens is over and over and over and over, pastors, Christian leaders will take scripture and take passages that I think may be, may be more focusing on the spiritual or our position or the eternal situation and they Offer them up like, hey, this is what you can experience right now in your physical existence. Hey, this is what you can get. This is what you can have right now in your practice. Hey, this is what you can experience right now in your temporal existence. And they sell it that way. Come to Christ, and this is what you can have now. This is what you can get now. This is what you can experience now. This is what will be your practice. This is what you can experience right now in this temporal world. And I think a lot of times it's sold that way, right? Almost like an info commercial. Hey, you know, call now, but wait, there's more. And we sell it that way. And then I think people become Christians and then they kind of look at their lives and they're like, wait a minute. This doesn't look that way. This doesn't feel that way. This doesn't seem to be the reality that was sold to me, which can lead to disillusionment and people can become very frustrated And very irritated and very disappointed and almost despondent and almost bitter and almost walk away from the church. And I don't, are they walking away from Christianity or are they walking away from the church that sold them a lie? And they're now disillusioned with what they ultimately got. Now are they're disillusioned with maybe false promises? Now maybe, maybe not. Maybe they're disillusioned because they, they didn't find a way to get these promises that they were promised. Who knows? We but we, we want to make sure we're fair with the text. If the text is making a promise for something here, now, physical, dealing with my practice, dealing with this temporal world, then I want them and I want to experience them. But if it, if it isn't speaking to that, then I don't want people to get disillusioned. I don't want them to experience that. All right. So keep that in mind. Now, with that, Print, with those principles laid as a foundation. Now let's look at a number of scriptures. Number of scriptures. Right? Let's go to Isaiah chapter 53 verse 5. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 5. And you'll see how these scriptures correspond to those principles. The book of Isaiah. Chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53. Now. Now. Most believe Isaiah 53. Obviously, especially in uh, as as Christians, we definitely believe this, and we believe the New Testament would, New Testament supports this. That Isaiah 53 is a messianic prophecy, prophesying the coming of Christ as a suffering servant. Right, and look at uh, look at what we read here. Isaiah 53. We'll start in verse one. Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. We believe this is showing us that Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, would come the Messiah, the promised Messiah would come in in human flesh and he would suffer as a substitutionary sacrifice on our behalf he would suffer, he would face the wrath of God, he would endure the wrath of God for us, but there's this very important statement here, and with his stripes, we are healed with his stripes, we are healed now. We know that there are thousands and millions of Christians who run around and claim that. By his stripes, we're healed. By his stripes, we're healed. Doesn't matter. And they think that that promise, that when Jesus suffered and died on that cross, but by his stripes, by his suffering, that we are guaranteed healing. Listen, not of a spiritual problem, but of our physical sicknesses, disease, um, handicaps, whatever the case may be. That, we ha- that healing is guaranteed. Now, I want you to keep that in mind because they claim that, but guess what? Someone loses an arm, someone loses a leg, have they ever healed an amputee? Have they ever made a leg reappear, an arm reappear? They can't pull that off. They make all these claims of healings and then typically when they're investigated, you find out they're fraudulent and they're a bunch of garbage. Now, if you have to create lies and hoaxes and, 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 and try to do cover-ups to get the idea that God heals, you should start asking yourself, maybe our interpretation here is not correct. Because if healing is guaranteed, it wouldn't be supernatural. It would be the natural. I wouldn't be, I wouldn't have a pair of glasses here in my hands, right? I wouldn't have a seizure disorder, right? But I'll be gone. So how do we interpret that? Well, we can interpret that, that obviously this is referring, we are going to be healed spiritually. He came to die for our sins, which the New Testament emphasizes over and over. Christ came to die for our sins. He died for our sins. It's by placing faith in his substitutionary work that we can be forgiven, that we can be saved. So you see, some take that, and they want to apply that to the physical, so the physical, not our spiritual condition, but a physical condition. They want they don't want to uh, say that this, that he came to heal us for, with our position before God. He came to heal us in a way that we can live a life, uh, in a physical way. Um, that this is all about the temporal. This is all about the physical. This is all about how we live our lives. That God is guaranteed healing. They've taken something that is ultimately for a spiritual promise. And listen, listen, they want to apply it to the temporal, here and now. Now, I do believe by his stripes we will receive a physical healing, but it's when we get to eternity and we receive a new body where there's no more pain, no more suffering, and no more death, and no more sickness, and no more disease, etc., etc., etc. But it's because of the finished work of Christ that will ultimately get me to eternity. They want to apply it to the temporal. They want to take all that this verse and bring it right down to Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And guess what? They tell people that. People buy into that. And next thing you know, guess what? At some point, you think they would start questioning it. Because as they get older and they start having more health problems and more health problems, you would think they would go, wait a minute, where's the healing? And again, I've told the story a million times. People in Abilene, Texas, who go to these whacked out, crazy, you know, on the lunatic fringe, charismatic, you know, circuses, believing this nonsense, they would be the same people calling me on the appointment line, needing an appointment. And I, and I was like, how can you go to a church that says healing is guaranteed and you're calling me for a medical appointment? Could you, could you go away, right? Could you go away and, and take care of it yourself? So there's one. Let's look at another one, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Go to 2 Corinthians 5.17. 2 Corinthians 5.17 reads like this. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Now, If you've been in church for any length of time, you know how that's preached and how that's taught. Hey, if you become a Christian, all those old things—they're gone. You are—you are a new creature. If you come to Christ, you are a new creature. All those old things are gone. They've passed away. And you're like, okay, so you know, if you—if you were addicted to this and you become a Christian, it's gone. If you struggled with this sin, you become a Christian, it's gone. All of that old way of thinking, old way of living, all those old desires—it's on. It's all gone. You're in Christ, you're a new creature. It's all gone. Well, then you become a Christian. You're like, man, alive. I still struggle with this. And I struggle with this. And I end up thinking this way. And I lose my temper. And I say words I shouldn't say. And I think thoughts I shouldn't think. And I struggle with this addiction. Or you struggle with this addiction. Or you end up doing this. Or you end up doing that. And you start thinking, wait a minute. They told me that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. And all things have become new. Where is the new? Because how was it sold to you? It was sold to you that, that 2 Corinthians 5.17 is dealing with your physical existence. Right, right now that you're going to experience this in a physical way. You're not going to have those struggles. You're going to be completely different. You're going to com- be completely transformed. You're going to be, it's all going to be gone. In other words, if you, if you struggle with homosexuality and you become a Christian, boom, you're never going to struggle with homosexuality again. You magically become a heterosexual. Just boom, overnight. It just happens. And then when people, it, it doesn't happen that way. And they're like, well, wait, I thought if anyone's in Christ, is a new creature, old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. Well, what happened? Well, then you off have some will say, well, that means you never got saved. You're like, well, wait, wait, wait. So all, all of the old things went away from you as well? Or they'll say that, that this deals with your, uh, that not only that deals with the physical, it deals with the practice. You In your practice, you should demonstrate that you're a new creature in Christ and old things have passed away. We should be able to see everything is new. Or they will say this refers to the temporal, not, nothing dealing with eternity. Now, or you could come along, okay, and we could argue a different way of interpreting that right? that what this is saying that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. And this is referring to his spiritual state, his position before God. And now as a Christian, when someone becomes a Christian, I view them, I treat them, I see them as a new creature because in their position before God, because they've placed their faith in Christ, His righteousness is accredited to their account. I see them as completely forgiven. I see them as holy. It doesn't mean that they're that way in their practice. doesn't mean that they're that way in their everyday life and their physical existence. No, this is their position and their state spiritually. And that's how I treat them. And that's how I see them. That's a radically different approach to that verse. And if you try to offer that interpretation to most Christians, they're going to look at you like you're crazy. But then here's the thing. They will look at you like you're crazy. And then you look at the Christianity and you're like, wait a minute. Why do we have so many divorces? Why do we have so many problems in our family? Why do we have so many, why do we have uh, so many Christian men struggling with porn addiction? Why do we have this problem? Why do we have so many Christian teenagers struggling with, uh, premarital sex? Why do we have all these issues? I don't get it. You're all in Christ. You're a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. You should never have another problem again. So do you become new for like five minutes and then the newness wears off and you go back to the old you? Or does the old you still... Because some Christians will, will quote 2 Corinthians 5.17 while still preaching that you still have an old nature. Well, if I have an old nature, then the old is not gone. <laughs> the old is still there. So how do you interpret that? I think you have to interpret 2 Corinthians 5.17. It's speaking about our spiritual state. It's speaking about our position. And we have to see, and and that's the way we treat people and see people, all right? So those are two that really establish it. Now what I want to do is I want to go to Romans chapter 8, because there are three verses in Romans chapter 8 where I think these these principles have to possibly come into play. And I'm going to read the three verses to you, all right? Let's go to Romans chapter 8. Now I know at some point we'll get to Romans chapter 8 and we'll cover this entire chapter verse by verse. That's a long time away. But let's see, um, let's see how far we can get here. Romans chapter eight. Let's look at three verses. First one, Romans chapter eight, verse 28. Romans chapter eight, verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Romans 8, 28, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. Now, this verse is quoted all the time, quoted all the time. If if your house is on fire and everything in your life is falling apart, you got a horrible medical, uh, you got a call from your doctor that was not a good call, everything's falling apart. Life seems, you mean the world seems to be on fire around you and then typically you'll get some Christian You'll say, you know, all things work together for good. All things work together for good. And they, they almost imply that that means God is gonna take all of these bad things happening in your life and it's going to work out good in your physical, temporal, practical, everyday life. Hey, all this is gonna turn out good. Right now it may be bad, Right now, it may seem like Friday night, but you know, Sunday's on the way. And they preach it and, you know, say all the little cliches and it's all going to turn out good. It's all going to turn out good. It's all going to get better. It's all going to be great because God works all things together for good. And they interpret that good to be referring to the physical existence, your your everyday practice that you're experiencing, and the temporal. Is that the good that's being referred to there? Is that the good? If someone walks into this church right now and walks in and shoots me three times and I fall on this floor and let's say they were able to survive me, but I can never walk again. Maybe I can never speak again. Maybe I can never see again. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm pretty much like, I'm, I'm going to be unable to take care of myself. I'm going to, I'm going to become a burden on someone else to take care of me wherever is, is that going to work out good for my life here? Is that, is that, is that all things are worked together for good? What, what, is there something good that's going to come from that? Now, some people say, well, all things are going to work together good. Does that have anything to do with the good in the temporal, physical, practical, everyday life? What if I die? <laughs> okay, did, did I, Now, you could argue, well, all things work together good because then I'll be in heaven. I guess you could you can see it from that perspective. But it's like, you know, we'll, we'll throw that at people. I mean, people experience some horrible, horrible thing. Physical assault, sexual assault. Hey, all things work together for good. Hey, um, I, I was molested by someone for 15 years when I was young. All things work together for good. All things work together for good. Now, I know it looked bad, but God meant it for good. It, or, or, or whoa, 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 whoa. yo, you may want to slow down there. Now, I could be saying we got to slow down and someone could argue, no, no, that's what the text is saying. Well, is it possible that the good there is referring to our spiritual good? It's referring to our eternal good? It's referring to our spiritual position? Is that a possibility? Right, Possibly. Let's go to another passage in Romans. Go to Romans chapter eight, verse 31. And this is the verse that sparked Um, the conversation and then the email that led to me doing this tonight. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. What shall we say then? Or what shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? If God be for us, who can be against us? Now, I've heard this applied to pretty much everything. Doesn't matter what's happening. Hey, if God is for you, you know, who can be against you? So don't worry about, Oh, you got that call about that disease. Don't worry. If God is for you, that disease can't be against you. Hey, don't worry about COVID-19. If God is for us, who can be against us? So don't worry about social distancing, wearing masks, wash your hands. In fact, go around and lick doorknobs that people with COVID-19 touch because it can't hurt you. Right? I've heard it. I've heard it preached so many different ways. Now, sometimes it's weird because on one hand we'll say, hey, you don't need to worry about that because if God is for us, who can be against us? And then we'll turn around in five seconds later and say, but wait, 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 wait. I need four guns in case someone breaks into my house. I need armed security guards at my church. What, wait, if God is for us, who can be against us? Now, if God is for us, who can, who can be against us in what way? In a physical way? And a practical way? And a temporal way? Or, if God is for me, who can be against me spiritually? Who can be against me as, re- and as far as my position before God is concerned? Who can be against me as far as where I'm going for eternity? Is that what it's referring to? Or do we see it in a temporal, physical, practical way? These are very important hermeneutical principles. And the church always sells it in a way that it, even if they don't tr- mean it that way, they give the impression that it, especially if you if, if when you were a young Christian, remember how you heard some of these things and how you probably told other people about them and how you probably claimed them. And it, probably at some point in your life, you realize, mm, I don't know about all of this. I don't know about all of this. All right, let's go to one more. Romans chapter eight, verse 37. Romans chapter eight, verse 37. Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. We're more than conquerors. Okay, we're more than conquerors. What does that mean? Can you conquer all sin? Well, no, 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 you can't do that. Okay, well, then are you more than a conqueror if you can't even conquer all sin? Can you uh, conquer all bad thoughts? Can you conquer all bad desires? Can you conquer all bad personality traits? Can't, can't, what can you conquer? I'm more than a conqueror. What am I conquering? Is this speaking of conquering things in a physical, in my physical reality, my physical existence? Is this about conquering things in my practical everyday existence? Is this about conquering things in the temporal? Or am I more than conquerors, spiritually speaking, in my position, in my security eternally? But it's so funny. I've heard it. We're more than conquerors. We're more than conquerors. We're more than conquerors. And then you're like, but you keep sinning. (laughs) We keep messing up. Christian marriages keep falling apart. Churches keep splitting. Christians keep falling into sin. Christian teenagers keep ended up in, you know, premarital sex. People keep getting addicted to pornography. We're more than conquerors. We're more than conquerors. It's like we, we keep telling ourselves these things even when everything around you screams, uh, you don't look so much like a conqueror to me. And if God is for you, if nothing can be against you, you seem like to have a lot of things against you. All things work together for good, man. May are you sure? Cause your your child got hit by a drunk driver and is dead. They didn't even get to see their you know sweet 16 birthday. Worked out great for them. Hey, some, somebody just walked into a school and shot up a bunch of kids. Hey, all things work together for good. I mean, those families lost their kids, but hey, all things work together for good. Oh, well, some, you know, terrorists flew some airplanes into some buildings and killed thousands of people. Oh, well, all things work together for good. Hey, we got a, we got a pandemic spreading around the world and thousands of people are dying. Oh, well, all things work together for, it's like we just throw it out there and we, without any thought, are like, what does that really mean? So how should we interpret these passages? All right. Now, that lays down the foundation, lays down the principle. Now, so that lays the foundation, that that gives you the foundation, or let's do it this way. That gives you the principle and that gives you some examples and how these principles may apply. And you've got groups who will apply, apply these verses in different ways. Sometimes we start having an argument with people. This is what you're literally fighting over. Should I be looking at it from a hermeneutical perspective? Should I be looking at this verse as speaking to physical or spiritual? Should I be looking at this verse as referring to position or practice? Or should I be looking at this verse referring to eternal or the temporal? You've got to establish that first. Now, that gives you the principle. That gives you some examples. Now, here's what we're going to do. The other night... Um, I was taking one of my virtual road trips to one of the most influential churches in the United States of America. I've been doing this. I've been doing a lot of these late at night. And uh, we ended up in Albuquerque, New Mexico. All right. We ended up, and I'm not going to go through all the churches we've visited so far in all of these messages. We ended up at Calvary Chapel of Albuquerque, New Mexico. Pastor Skip Heidzig. They have an average weekly attendance of 16,830 people. Now, Calvary Chapel of Albuquerque, I've had a lot of different, um, a lot of different connections with it in a lot of different ways. I discovered uh, Calvary uh, Calvary Chapel in Albuquerque in the 1990s because of the satellite system Sky Angel. They uh, broadcast their Saturday night service live, and I always was fascinated by that because I always wanted my church to have a Saturday night service because I was like, man, that'd be cool. We could all get together and study the Bible on Saturday and on Sunday. And it was always cool to see his church packed with thousands and thousands, and they were typically young people, uh, young people, college-age students, high school students, you know, thousands of them packed in to hear a sermon on a Saturday night. And I was always like, that is so cool. Um, and compared to what else was on Christian television at Calvary Chapel, uh, Albuquerque, uh, Pastor Skip Heidsick, he at least opened the Bible and preached the Bible, and typically in some form of a verse by verse, working through books. Now, I didn't always agree with the theology, but compared to the rest of the things on Christian television, it was a breath of fresh air. And when we've been visiting these churches in our virtual road trip, listening to the sermons preached at these uh, churches, uh, one of the things that uh, I, I stated is that this church would be a breath of fresh air compared to many of the others. And it was in a lot of ways. Now, And I could talk some other ways. Uh, I've had connection with that church, but I won't get into all of those. All right. So here's what happened. Um I started um on the other night I played a sermon from Calvary Chapel of Albuquerque and I really didn't say much during it. But by the time the church, the sermon was over I stated something that I have stated a million times. There are a lot of churches. And the issue with those churches is not what they say. It's what they will never say. They will take a scripture and never stop to go, well, wait a minute. This scripture brings up five different problems. This scripture raises this problem and this problem. And wait, if we interpret this scripture this way, well, then what about all the things happening in, in our life? They, they don't, they're not willing to raise the difficult questions. They just give you the standard, you know, here's the verse and, and make it encouraging and never stop to go, wait a minute, people. If we understand that verse this way, Well, then why does this happen? And why does this happen? And what about this? And what about that? Because that makes people uncomfortable. And that gets you accused of you're questioning the word of God. No, you're trying to be honest and think it through. So by the time I got done listening to him, I was like, here we go. This, the verse that he dealt with should have raised 20 problems. And he made it sound like that there wasn't a problem. And it's not that he necessarily said anything wrong. It's what he never said. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to go back and listen to part of that sermon because it deals with one of those popular verses in Romans chapter 8. And we're going to... But You've already been given a hermeneutical principle now. You've already been given a hermeneutical principle. Now you've got to figure out how to apply this principle and which way does it go. He's going to give you his way of handling it. And you'll have to listen because there's some things that he... He almost infers it one way, right? It's almost, he, he may not be explicit, but he's inferring at times certain, certain understanding that I think goes well beyond the text in certain cases. He, he doesn't seem to, to try to want to answer some of the difficult questions. And this is the problem with so many churches. Again, it's not what they say. It's what they will never say in a million years. It's what they will never say on Christian radio. And it's what I've learned you're never supposed to say because the minute you do that you get accused of being a heretic or being a liberal or you or a bible denier or you hate God. And it's like, "No, I'm just trying to be honest with the text, which is what I thought we were supposed to do." All right? But you you can't do that. So, we're going to listen to some of this. If you heard if you heard it uh last time when we when we went visited this church, I apologize. No, actually, I don't. Sometimes listening to something more than once really gives us the ability to dig in. So we're going to dig in. I don't know how far we're going to get because I spent 30 minutes laying down, 35 minutes laying down that principle, laying down that that idea. But that that th- those concepts I gave you are critical, all right? So let's see. He's going to be in Romans chapter 8. Let's see what he says. We're probably going to interrupt a lot here. Let's see how it goes. Members of Victory Baptist Church in the chat, start asking any questions, any thoughts. You can uh, offer anything you need to. All right, here we go. Um, Let's jump in. How do you and I respond to spiritual truth?
1: That's a good question. How do you and I respond to spiritual truth? Obviously, God wants a reaction. Obviously, he wants a positive reaction. Um, we should at least apply it to our lives. The truth should be warned by the believer, should make a difference in the way we live. Many people read and study God's Word, but they don't apply it to their lives. Today on Connect with Skip Heitzig, Skip reveals how you can demonstrate the right response to biblical truth in your life. But before we begin, here's a great resource that will help the
0: kids in your life. Now let's stop right there. Hey, I agree. It's important to respond to spiritual truth in a correct way. But here's the thing. If you're going to apply spiritual truth to your life, you've got to first ask, does it apply to my physical life, to my temporal existence, to my practical everyday life, or do I apply this to my position before God, my spiritual life, my eternal home? If you're going to apply it, you have to apply it correctly. Right? Just like when we uh, see promises in the Bible, we have to determine if those promises are for us. They may be not applicable. And if it's not applicable, then we don't apply them to us. We have to find out if a passage is simply prescribing what we are to do or simply describing what happened. Like, it's not like just grab the Bible and apply it to your life. It's not that simple. And that's so much modern day Christianity. And if you, if you come at it in any criticism, and people are like, I don't know what's going on in that church. That's a bunch of garbage. Yeah, you just go and play church, living in, and you can put it this way. You can have a Christianity based in reality, or you can have a Disney version of Christianity that ignores reality, denies reality, and you can pretend that your fantasy world is real, but everyone looking at you knows that it's a bunch of garbage because it doesn't work that way. And everybody can see that it doesn't work that way. All right. Now he's going to tell you about a wonderful wonderful resource that is there to design to keep young people in the Bible. And I bet you the church is going to give it away for free. What do you bet? What do you bet? Let's see. Engage God's word like never before.
2: The most recent State of the Bible survey revealed that only 9% of millennials read the Bible on a daily basis. The most skeptical generation on record is also uninformed about the word of God. Small wonder there's such lifestyle confusion. What about your own children or your grandchildren? How can you pass on your faith to a younger generation so they don't become a statistic and skeptic? We want to help you encourage a young person in your life to get excited about God's Word and all He has for them. Soaring Through the Bible by Skip Heitzig gives kids and tweens an overview of the entire Bible in an exciting travel guide format that includes fun illustrations and fascinating facts to keep them engaged. We'll send you your copy of this made-for-kids resource when you give a generous donation of $35 or more to help keep these Bible-based teachings on the air, connecting more people like you to God's
0: Word. Hey, we are so worried about this young generation not knowing the Bible. I mean, we are so worried about it that we want to help you. We want to help you help your young people get engaged in the Bible. And we want to help you for the low, low, low cost of $35. $35, we're here to help you because we want those young people to be engaged for a low price of $35. Yeah, that's uh and it's and I'm not I'm not just criticizing him Every ministry on planet earth pretty much does this. Hey, this resor- we've created this resource that will help you in your spiritual life. It will save your marriage. It will help your prodigal son. It will it will fix this. It will fix it. And we we so desperately want to help you and for a low low donation of $57, we will send it to you. Well then how much do you really want to help? And right? And and just remember how many people attend his church on a weekly basis. Just remember um Sixteen thousand eight hundred and thirty people attend his church on a weekly basis. Sixteen thousand eight hundred and thirty. Think they should be able to give a couple of copies away, a couple of hundred away, a couple of thousand away, maybe. I mean, Skip Heidzik wrote the book. It's his book. The only thing they have to do is the cost of of of. Well, I mean, you could just put it out digitally, right? A free download. In a PDF format. Oh, could, I mean, you, you could do that, right? He could type out the book and then put it in a PDF format and then make it available for free online. Wow. That's a crazy idea. Uh, but, you know, can't do that. Can't do that. Call now to give and then receive your copy of Soaring
2: Through the Bible, 800 Eighteen eighty-eight, Or give online securely at connectwithskip.com slash offer.
1: Okay, we're in Romans chapter 8 today as we get into the teaching with Skip Heisen.
2: How many of you did not
1: like to take tests when you were in school? Raise your hands. Yes, yes, most of us. I love y'all. But, but now wait, how many of you actually did like to take tests? Raise your hand. Yeah, there's a few of you like that. I'm trying to love you really hard. Wow. Um, Most students don't like exams because it requires extra effort, brain power, preparation. I remember I had a physics teacher who loved pop quizzes. And every time he said, we're going to have a pop quiz today, the whole class groaned. We hated it because we were not ready for it. A father was talking to his son and said, Why did you get such a low score on that exam? And the boy said, Absence. The father said, You mean you were absent on the day of the exam? And he said, No, but the boy who sits next to me was. (laughs) One man even explained, Exams are like girlfriends. Too many questions. Difficult to understand, more explanation is needed, result is always fail. (laughs) Tests, exams, have questions. Questions are written by the professor to see if the student has assimilated the information, has accumulated the knowledge, or if there's weak areas the student needs to bone up on, work on. So... Uh, Can I graduate this student to a higher level, a higher grade, or a higher level of knowledge? A test will determine that. Um, One student said, there's only one thing I hate more than taking tests in school, and that's the grade I get after taking tests in school. Nobody likes them. Well, a few of you do. Right here in the middle of the book of Romans, we have a series of questions that I'm calling a midterm exam. The questions begin in verse 31. They kind of continue through the end of chapter 8. We're going to look at uh, verses 31 through 34. But consider it a midterm exam, because the book of Romans has 16 chapters. We're in the 8th chapter. That's sort of right in the middle. And Paul gives a series of questions. You will not be graded by your answers, at least from me. These questions are simply put there to drive home the point the author is making. Now, let's just back up. You've noted that Paul the Apostle likes questions. He asks a lot of them in this book. And that's noteworthy that part of his style in writing the book of Romans was an ancient literary method of question and answers, an ancient style called the diatribo, or the diatribe. It was a Socratic method taught by Socrates where there would be questions and answers given by the speaker or by the author in this case for a very specific reason. That is to challenge assumptions, to clarify notions and ideas and to lead a student from perhaps error into truth to clarify certain truths. So... Throughout the book of Romans, Paul has an imaginary conversation between a critic and himself, and he asks questions and then answers them. Here's a sampling. In chapter 3, verse 1, Paul asks, what advantage then has the Jew? He answers it, much in every way, and he explains it. In chapter 3, verse 9, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all, for it is written. Very similar. Chapter 3, verse 27, he asks, Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No, by the law of grace. Chapter 4, verse 1. What shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? Question mark What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So he follows that way of teaching throughout the letter, even in chapter 6, verse 1. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. Now we get to a section right in the middle of the book of Romans where he just asks question after question after question after question after question. A couple of them have comments, but most of them are questions. Look at chapter 8, verse 31. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. So here, in this section that we just read, it's a little bit different than what he has written before in terms of questions. He's sort of layering question upon question upon question, as if to say, um, there's nothing more I can say to this. Um, There's nothing left to add. So he just sort of crescendos it with questions to make a point. Look at it like it's the icing on the cake of God's love for you. Now, we're going to look at each of these five questions in these verses, and we're going to look at it like...
0: Now I'll stop right here. If you, if you talk to someone who goes to a church like this, they're going to think this is all great. We're studying Romans. I mean, he's, he's doing a very good jo- job. He's, he's explaining the literary device that Paul is using. He's, he's giving you context. He's doing a really, really good job here. And it sounds like, yes, I'm studying Romans, right? I'm really going to dig in. All right. Really good. All right. And it sounds wonderful. Right. The problem isn't, isn't in what he is saying. It's what he's not going to allow these questions to lead to, which is, wait a minute here. How do we understand these things? How, how do we get this? I mean, he made reference to one of the questions. And I think if you paid attention, you, you've got it. Um, verse 32. He that spared not his own son, but delivered uh, him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Now, Okay, let's go back to the principle. All things—he's gonna—is he not gonna give us all things? He gave us his son. Is he not gonna give us all things? All things, what? All things referring to our physical existence. All things refer uh, referring to our practical everyday life, to our temporal existence, or has that got to be referring to something spiritually? Something about our position. Something about eternity. Because there's plenty of Christians who don't seem to be getting all things. There are Christians who live in poverty. There are Christians who live in threat of martyrdom. There's Christians who live with pestilence, disease, famine, poverty. So what do you mean he's going to give us all things? Don't we need to at least try to understand that and ask some questions? I would say yes. So just right there tells you we need those principles I've given you come into play right here big time. Let's see what he's going to do here. The verse that he's going to focus on is verse 31. Let's just see what he infers here. Here we go. Like a midterm
1: exam, we're going to answer these five questions. The first question is a question of reaction. Reaction. Look at verse 31, just the first part. What then shall we say to these things? Stop there. That's the first question. What then shall we say to these things? So the very first question Paul asks is a question that should cause a reaction. He's wondering, what is your response to the truth so far? But it makes us ask a question. When he asks this question, we ask this question. He says, what shall we say to these things? We
0: go, what things are you talking about? And that's really, really good, and that's good Bible teaching and this is what makes this so frustrating because right here you i mean i'm a this is good stuff this is good stuff he's he speaks very well he's he's doing a very good job. this sounds so good. it sounds like you're studying Romans now, I would stop us right here and ask an important question because this is going to be critical to where we're headed when when it says these things. And I'll just kind of give you, you basically got two ways to go. Um, what should we say to these things? Either number one refers to everything that's been said and the entire letter up to this point. Chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, chapter four, chapter five, chapter six, chapter seven. Others argue, no, 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 no. What should we say to these things is referring to the things just spoken and the verses before this, in the immediate context. Those are your two options. But let me ask you. If we look at the whole book of Romans, especially everything leading up to to chapter 8, over and over and over, I think we can say the theme of the book of Romans has been salvation, justification. How can we... Be right before a holy God. How are we made righteous? How can we be declared righteous? How can we be justified? Well, how do we live out our Christian life with, with sin and, and our struggle with sin? It's about our spiritual existence, our spiritual living out our life. There, there, the emphasis is so much on position, so much on the spiritual, so much on being made ready for eternity. That has been the emphasis Keep that in mind, because I think that needs to be emphasized if we're going to deal with some of these verses in Romans chapter 8. Because again, hey, he gave us his own son. He's gonna With that, he's going to give us all things. All things pertaining to what? Well, the book's emphasis has been on my spiritual standing before God. Right? That's why Paul uh, later in Ephesians says, we've been blessed with all spiritual blessings. You know, spiritual blessings all things? Are you referring to, I'm going to have everything here? Like, these are the questions you have to ask, but I think the theme of the book is very, 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 very important. here. All right, let's see where else he goes.
1: So let me try to answer that. Number one, maybe he means all the things I've written about so far in eight chapters, the whole book of Romans. So the whole book of Romans so far is about the wrath of God, that it's eclipsed by the grace of God. So the first few chapters were under the judgment of God, every human being faces that, but God in his grace sent Jesus and justifies people based on faith. He could mean that, all of the eight chapters. Number two, when he says, what shall we say to these things? These things could simply be the truths that he has written about in the eighth chapter alone. And what are those truths? Well, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. We are adopted children of God. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, so we have a new power to live a new life. And we have promised glory beside. Or, third possibility, he could mean just the things I wrote about in the paragraph before this. What shall we say to these things? Things like, All things work together for good to those who are in Christ Jesus, Um, that he foreknew you, that he predestined you, that he called you, that he justified you, and that one day he will glorify you. Either way, take your pick of those truths from that paragraph to the whole chapter to the whole book. Here's the question. What shall we say to these things? What do you say to that? Yeah, how about, thank you, Jesus, hallelujah, or at least, wow, it should evoke some response. These things should evoke the deepest gratitude, the deepest humility, and the deepest appreciation. The fact that he asked this question, the first question in the midterm exam, is this principle. How do you and I respond to spiritual truth? That's a good question. How do you and I respond to spiritual truth? Obviously, God wants a reaction. Obviously, he wants a positive reaction. Um, We should at least apply it to our lives. The truth should be worn by the believer, should make a difference in the way we live. So ask yourself this. When you hear truth, are you A, enthusiastic about it, B, indifferent to it, Uh, C, are you open to it if it agrees with you? But if it doesn't agree with you, I'm not open to it. Those are important lines of questions. J.I. Packer wrote a great book every Christian should read, in my opinion, called Knowing God. And in that book, he writes, Whenever we embark on any line of study in God's holy book, we need to ask ourselves... What is my ultimate aim and object in occupying my mind with these things? What do I intend to do with my knowledge about God once I've got it? For if we pursue theological knowledge for its own sake, it's bound to go bad on us. It will make us proud and conceited, for the very greatness of the subject matter will intoxicate us. So, first question. How do you respond, react to spiritual truth? Why is that such an important question? Because I'm not just talking about any book. We're talking about God's book. This isn't a course you take uh, to get into a higher degree program. This isn't just uh, for a promotion at work. We're talking about eternal life stuff. How do you respond, react, to truth about eternal life stuff. I mean, it makes sense that if God is your teacher, (laughs) we best listen carefully and uh, respond accordingly. Did you know that Jesus taught his disciples that they should be very careful how they listen to God? This is what he said. Take heed how you hear. Not just what you hear. Be very careful about how you listen. For whoever has, to him more will be given. To him who has not, even that which he seems to have will be taken away. So, our reaction to spiritual truth determines our action with spiritual truth. Our reaction determines our action. Here's an example. Psalm 27, David wrote, When you said, Seek my face... My heart said to you, your face, Lord, will I seek. As soon as you told me to do that, I said, I'm doing it. That is a positive reaction. It's a question of reaction. What then shall we say to these things? So what that means is when we come to church and we say, turn in your Bibles to. First of all, it's good to have a Bible with you to be able to look at it because it's spiritual truth. Number two, um, how am I going to respond to what I hear? You should determine that before you come. Not just to church, but when you have quiet time or you have a small group, a discipleship group. What am I going to do with what I hear? Again, I underscore this because James gives us a warning in chapter 1 of his little epistle when he writes, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says... Or else, he says, you're like the man who goes to the mirror, checks himself out in the mirror, and then he walks away and he forgot what he looked at. So, do what it says. It's a question of reaction. The second question on the midterm exam is a question of opposition. Now it gets really good. Second part of verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, stop there on that one. Do you know that God is for you? God in heaven is for you. If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, there were people, even in the Bible, who did not think that God was for them. Job was one of them. He suffered greatly. He lost lots of things. Job, in his prayer to God, at one point, his lowest point perhaps said these words to God, Why do you hide your face and regard me as your enemy? There's a guy who does not think God is for him at that moment. Jeremiah even thought along those lines. He was the prophet who predicted the captivity, but when Jerusalem was surrounded by the Babylonian armies and the temple started burning and buildings started falling, Jeremiah in lamentation said, The Lord is like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. The patriarch Jacob didn't think God was for him. We hinted at this last week. It was Jacob who said, all things are against me. And they may have been. He may have felt that way, but maybe everyone was against him. Let's say everyone was against him. That means everyone except one. God was for him. God is for you. I found an article uh, from the New York Times, and um, it's a fascinating article. It was titled, Googling God, Googling God. It's an article that explores recent trends in the Google search data. Uh, People type in questions about God. Here's the top three questions. People Google about God. Question number one, who created God? Number two. Why does God allow evil to exist? Or why does He allow suffering? That's pretty predictable. Here's the third question, most popular question people ask. Ready for this one? Here's the question. Why does God hate me? Why does God hate me? People actually type in, why does God hate me? Obviously, by that research, there's a significant population-based group of people who view God, if there is one, as judgmental, capricious, a tyrant. Why does God hate me? Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Now look at the word if. If God is for us. That sounds pretty conditional, right? Like, well, maybe he is. Maybe he's not. If he is, that's a good thing. If he's not, that's pretty bad. Now it is a conditional word, but listen to this. It's a Greek conditional particle, but it means a fulfilled condition, not a possibility. What that means is, a better translation would be, since God is for us, who can be against us? Or because God is for us, who can be against us? It's a fact, not an option. Because of the fact that God is for us, who can be against us? I think some of you need to wake up tomorrow, and here's the first thought that you need to put in your brain. God is for me. You need to wake up with that. Some of you even need to um, say the lyrics to the song we've sung around here. I am chosen, not forsaken. I am who you say I am. You are for me, not against me. I am who you say I am. In fact, try, Even sing it tomorrow if you want to annoy your husband or wife or... If your pets won't run away when you do, uh, you may just want to sing that. But here's the deal. If God is willing to put the gavel down and say, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, God is for you. If he is willing to look at your life and
0: say, All right, now we're going to have to stop. We're not getting to where we want to go, but now we have kind of a a, a least... A, not a different hermeneutical dilemma here. And and I know it's not what he intended, but it's the way it's coming across. Now, And I agree with him that if God is for us, it, it could be translated since God is for us, because God is for us, pretty much all, all Greek tools will agree with that. So I don't have a problem with that. But he made it sound like, hey, if you're out there on Google, doing a Google search, why does God hate me? Hey, he doesn't hate you. He's for you. But no, 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 no. If God is for us, who is the us? The us has to be referring to those who have been justified. If you have, if you're not in Christ Jesus, if you have not been justified, or if we go back to the immediate context, if you're not one of those who have been predestinated, called, justified, and one of those who will be glorified, if you're not one of those individuals, then can you say God is for you? Because the Bible would teach that if you're not in Christ Jesus, God, you are under the wrath of God. You are condemned already. So is he for you? If you can make it say because God is for us, but you have to identify who the us is. Now, he kind of did it a little bit, but he wasn't very forceful in that. He can't just stand in front of 16,000 people and say, and millions of people listening to him online and say, hey, everyone out there, God is for you. No, you're under the wrath of God unless you are in Christ Jesus. You will be judged. So is he for you then? Like, what do you mean by that? He's for you in a general sense that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But that love is not a... A saving love, because that love is not going to save you unless you are in Christ Jesus. And if you're not in Christ Jesus, you will experience the wrath of God, the eternal wrath of God, the condemnation of God. In fact, you're already under the condemnation of God. So I uh, that's that's like that's very modern day church like I'm not going to emphasize that negative there I'm going to make it sound like a very positive thing. Hey everyone, God is for you. The assumption is that everyone sitting there God is for them. Well, uh, uh, no, the the context here is whom he did did pre- predestinate, them he also called, whom he called he also justified and whom he justified, then them he also glorified. That's giving us the context. Those who are spiritually his because of his predestination, because of his electing, because of his calling, because of his justifying. those are going to be glorified. And those individuals can say, if God, because God is for us, then who can be against us? But against us and watch what way? Against us physically? Against us in a temporal way? What way? Now, that's what we have to answer. Now, we can't do it right now. We have six minutes and 59 seconds left of his sermon, and we'll have to use this for a different uh, message. So I I gave you the principle, and and now you can start working through those three three passages in Romans and see if you can come to your own conclusion. Be careful with the text. Do good cross-referencing. And make sure you have, uh, come up with a good answer and you can share that answer with me by emailing me. Newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com or members of Victory Baptist Church can post their thoughts in the chat. All right. I wanted to finish that, but if I, we don't establish that principle first, then we, can, we don't have the, the principles gives us the tools and how to handle this. So I had to establish the principles first before we could get into there. But we, we got, We got him, he got us all the way to right there. And the next thing he's going to do is focus on, hey, if God is for us, who can be against us? And well, it's interesting the way he handles that. All right, we'll stop right there. All right, thanks for listening. Everyone have a great night. Be safe, Uh, check on one another. And obviously if anyone needs anything, let me know. God bless.